0: Good evening, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Thank you for coming. Um, there's been a couple questions what the Long Now Foundation might be. And yeah, does that sound better? Yeah, I gotta really lick it, okay. Uh, one of the reasons we uh, open the doors for coffee at seven o'clock and then start the lecture promptly at eight is so that you guys have had a chance to do what you've been doing, which is schmooze and talk and buy coffee and get high and uh, read books. And also, I suppose, uh, get a little experience of um, patience. <laughs> uh, the Long Now is is all about fostering long-term responsibility, uh, as a byproduct we hope of taking the long term seriously. And this series of lectures, uh, seminars about long-term thinking is about the seventh major project the Long Now Foundation has taken on since it started ten years ago. It's based over here in the Presidio, our sort of uh, maypole project that everything else dances around is we're building a 10,000 year clock designed by Danny Hillis. Um, The second prototype is being built now. The first prototype is in London at the Science Museum ticking away. And the eventual clock wants to live in a mountain in eastern Nevada with bristlecone pines 5,000 years old up on top of it. Uh, that's the, the iconic project. Uh, we just got a very nice grant from the National Science Foundation for a serious working project called the Rosetta Project, which is aiming to put all of the documented living languages in the world online in one place. Uh, rosettaproject.org has about 1,600 languages there now. Uh, if we get all 4,000 languages in the next couple of years, that would be great. It's a uh, The site is really a collaboration engine, so there's... Well, over a thousand volunteer linguists, translators, and native speakers who are helping improve the quality of the material on there. We're also involved in digital preservation and uh, frequently collaborate with Brewster Kale over here, who's got his own spotlight, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: from the Internet Archive, and uh, working with Library of Congress and, and others on that. Uh, there's a site called longbets.org, which is a place where you can uh, put predictions online and they'll stay there until they're proven wrong or right. It doesn't matter how long. And uh, so the minimum time is two years and the maximum time is. Uh, well, one of the bets is Danny Hillis's bet with Nathan Merpold uh, as to whether the universe will keep expanding or not. <laughs> and there's a thousand dollars on each side of that betting. Put that <laughs> real money up. Uh, the the money goes into a fund where it collects compound interest over time. So by the time some of these bets pay off it's serious money. One of them from Peter Schwartz uh, who spoke last month here uh, is that uh, there is someone alive now who will be alive in 2150, 150 years from now. And uh, so that bet won't conclude until then, but uh, the thousand dollars that he and his uh, opponent put up for that will be pretty significant money by 2150. Uh, What else are we doing? We're just starting this outreach process here. And one of the reasons um, I encourage you to use these cards that have a place for questions on the back, the way the questions work is uh, anytime during the lecture or during the Q&A session, go ahead and write down a question, put your name on it because uh, we'll call your name so we can see who you are when uh, I or Kevin Kelly reads the question. But at the very bottom is something independent and and even more important in some ways. This audience, probably most of you came here via email um, because that's how word seems to get around for these things. So if you give us your email address, we will not do anything uh, dangerous with it, but we will let you know about the various talks as they come along and also supporting stuff. So for example, uh, we're now putting up on the Long Now website, longnow.org, where you can download previous talks for now audio in several different formats, eventually video, and we'll also have illustrated uh, print versions. So the the slides of which you'll see a great many tonight uh, will be there along with the the printed versions of the talks. We'll be making book recommendations, uh, leading you to place on website if you want to discuss with other people, uh, about this Long Now stuff, uh, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. This evening, <coughs> to introduce our speaker, here's Kevin Kelly.
1: Thank you, Stuart. So, so one of the reasons to, to, to have me introduce uh, George is, is to have another face with the Long Now Foundation to prove that it's just not Stuart. Behind this thing, there actually is a group of, of people who are trying to foster long-term responsibility and to encourage a long-term perspective. And in that vein, one of the things that we've discovered about trying to think about the, the long-term future is that some of the best futurists are actually very good historians. And George Dyson is a innovative historian of science. And um, he's sort of a, a very special character in the sense that there are... Um, He's not only a historian of science, but he's a historian of science who enjoys taking a view of the future. And there's very few of those. And the only one I can think of is, is HD Wells, who was a historian who had a really knack for thinking about the future. And in some ways, George Dyson is a lot like that. Um, you'll hear tonight about um, some of George's recent work in the history of computation and um, Unlike most of the histories of computation that you'll hear, this is actually about the origins and genesis of software, uh, probably the most important part of computation. So George has a very eclectic background. Uh, unlike lots of talks, he, he will actually introduce the talk with some of his own biography. So I don't have to talk about that because he's going to tell you a better version of it than I could. But what he's going to do is, is try to take a long-term view of The trajectory of computation in the very short past, very short now, and try to show you its general trends to indicate in some way or other what we might expect this to do. And um, I I think that I I really like George because he's a very unconventional thinker. And one of the conversations we often have are trying to uh, amuse each other with plausible heresies. And so I think you should really... um, Enjoy this very visual presentation, and um, I'm hoping that George Wells will also be able to encourage us to think about the long term in a slightly different way than we have been. So, George, welcome.
2: Thanks, Kevin and Stuart, and all, all my friends in the audience. I think the future of the computing is here in the audience, not. Not with me, but I'll I'll tell you about how we got here, and then we can sort of guess how we move ahead. I I owe Stuart an awful lot. I was a, a total misfit teenager in Princeton, New Jersey, when my sister, who lived down in Menlo Park, um, was hanging out with this bunch of people called the Mid Peninsula Free University, and doing all sorts of, of strange things. And then one day she sent me this little hand almost hand printed pamphlet which was the sort of the the ancestor of the whole earth catalog and it, it blew my mind there and it, I that's when I decided I, I I had to get out of New Jersey and and uh head west to the real world so there's plenty of room at the top is that's a play on Richard Feynman's talk great talk he gave in 1959 at Caltech there's plenty of room at the bottom when he explained that really uh, the thing to do is make machines smaller and that you could make small machines that would make smaller machines that would make smaller machines. And that's, how, that's of course, how we have 256 you know, megabytes on a little chip the size of your fingernail. We were actually doing that. Um, and we moved into that space with technology, but the, the reverse thing can also happen, which is that, that life... Uh, wants to move anywhere that there's sort of empty possibility space and larger there's this big possibility space for larger uh, forms of life and that's what this, the, the, the title has about there's also we can we can have larger smaller computers we don't have larger computers the, you know the whole world can become in a sense a computer um, life was limited whales and dinosaurs were the biggest things the nervous system can't you just can't go beyond much more than 100 feet and then otherwise you don't you don't. Feel it quickly enough when somebody bites your tail. Um, and now it's interesting that I think Danny pointed this out, that sort of the, the nervous twitch time between a, a dinosaur tail and the head is just about the same as, as a good connection around the world on the Internet. So uh, make, make of that what you will. Uh, so for me, playing in the room at the top was, was this uh, treehouse that I went to, that I built and lived in. When I left New Jersey and, and moved west. And that gave me a sense, a different sense of time scale, living in a 200-year-old Douglas fir tree for three winters. Really got the sense of, you know, life just grows one ring at a time, very slowly. It was, I wasn't making any political statement or trying to save the trees. I actually worked logging and so on. And so I had, had no great allegiance to the tree, but just it was a very cool place to live. The, the bottom of the tree is about way below the floor. It was 95 feet up. So, so that that that's you know gave me this, and my ideas about computers really all started up there. My sister was in that business, starting you know being a Wall Street reporter and would send me these uh, analyst reports on these companies that were starting to build computers that would talk to each other and so on. That's where I got all these strange ideas, sitting up there reading that stuff. Uh, so that's me at that. <laughs> early young age. And what what I did was build kayaks. I didn't want, I mean, anything to do with computer technology, I wanted, and I got this from Stuart Brand and his whole earth catalog was a was a reference to this book on skin boats and bark canoes in North America. And I just, just took that and ran with it and built all kinds of, taking these ancient designs. So again, it was a very long-term evolution of these boats. They probably go back certainly go back 5,000 years, and very good case can be made They go back 10,000 years, these same designs that were first documented by the Russians who came over uh, from Siberia into Alaska and then down south as far as here. In fact, they used to kayak in through the Golden Gate, and the Spanish, who kept their guns here at the Presidio, right just down the beach here, would shoot at them coming in the gate. So they, what they ended up doing was portaging over the Tennessee Valley Trail um, from... Into the head of Richardson Bay, and then paddling into the bay and trying not to get shot at when they when they went out. Uh, so this technology evolved in, in sort of a vicious circle that you had to have a fast kayak to catch these fast animals to get the skins to build a fast kayak to go catch these animals, and that's exactly what happened with with, with hardware and software in the computer world. We I mean, we all know the cycles that. that you 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 know you get a bigger computer then you can run more software and you get a, then you need a bigger computer to run that software that you thought would run on your existing computer but you need another one. It's a very similar cycle of evolution over a long period of time. People live in the illusions for uh, you know we know for sure eight or nine thousand years, probably ten thousand years, going through that technological. Development, this is a uh, model kayak from a burial cave, 800 years old. It was buried with a two-year-old child. This cave was a cave discovered a few summers ago. And that's a drawing done in in one of the schools in Unalaska just at the same time. So the the culture has stayed sort of in a steady state all this time. That's that's part of the the long now is that we live in a world that's changing so fast, but there's other worlds that have changed very slowly. This is Anangula an island that had probably something like 3,000 people living on it and that is the oldest known continuously inhabited settlement in North America. 8,700 years people lived on that island the same way until now. Um, And So that's the perspective I'm coming from. My dad who, who, who probably a lot of, you know, Freeman Dyson was not doing kayaks, he was doing spaceships and that was sort of my angle was to go out and do the same thing that he was trying to do in space but do it here on earth and and the same as the outer planets he wanted to go to were little islands in the in the solar system these were islands in the northwest that i went to. those sails using his tents um, so this is to give you a sense of how i always I mean technology has sort of a life of its own these boats had a life the aleuts looked at their boats as living things and so it was sort of natural that when I got my first computer, thanks to Larry here in the, in the front row and Apple, um, I saw, you know, couldn't do anything but think of sort of the life of computers as a, as a collective thing. They built very huge kayaks. This one was sort of the monster, answering the question why, why kayaks shouldn't be so large. And <laughs> <laughs> Fleets of small ones. And and this is Fort Ross, again, right up on the Sonoma coast here where the Russians had their, that was their outpost. That was as far as they could come without the Spanish getting too angry at them. And then from there, they they did these sort of uh, sneaky expeditions down into San Francisco Bay to Sacramento, San Jose, cleaning out the otters. Um, And this is one of my boats coming in through the Golden Gate. So it's very great to be back here, but I'm here to talk about the future... Of computing. But the the way I will do that really is to show you about the past. And by, by putting a greater depth on the past, I think we can see a little far ahead. We can see the trends of how far we've gone in 50 years. It's 1949. John von Neumann, who's the person, I'm really going to give you his perspective. on. The, there were many people working at the dawn of computing. He was only one of them, uh, but he was a genius. And even though he he may have a, like a black hole, he sort of attracted more credit than he deserved. Perhaps he, does, he did deserve at least half of the credit he got. That's von Neumann at age 12, so just showing his genius very early, uh, and belonged to a great school. This this one school in Budapest. I mean, a whole handful of people who came and completely brought us the, the world we live in today. Edward Teller, Leo Szilard. Eugene Wigner, von Neumann, Paul erdos they all came out of this one high school. So there's, there's something going on there. Like the, the, uh, and then when he came to America to, the, to this new outfit, started by a philanthropist, sort of a, 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 you know, a little bit of an outcast like, like Stuart and Kevin, I mean, saying, let's just do something really crazy. Let's not tell people what to do. What, let's just give them time to do what they want. So this institute was set up in 1930 by Abraham Flexner, who had been very discouraged as as fighting the educational system, wrote a lot of manifestos. And the idea was that that the the best thing you could give people was time. And so the institute gives you time in two forms. If you're really great, you get the rest of your life. And if you're just very young and bright, you get one year. And they've learned that there's really no in-between. If you let people stay two or three years, it's very hard to get them to leave. So you, you either get one year or you get your whole life. And, and last year, I was one of the people who got the year. So I got to go back there for a year and go through the papers, left. I mean, When, when von Neumann was brought to the Institute, they had no... They weren't thinking about bombs or computers or game theory. They, he was invited because he was a logician... Doing, you know, very useless pure logic, and this would be a place for him to work. Uh, building the computer there was really sort of an embarrassment to this, this this temple of pure thought to have some engineers there actually building machines. So the, when the project folded up, the papers were were essentially locked in a vault in the basement, and I was the first person to really have access to go through all this stuff. Um, this is my sister Esther. My older sister Katarina and I at Athens. So we grew up there, and to me, as a child, the, the von Neumann gang—they were my heroes. I mean, they were the guys who were fixing cars and, and building hi-fi stereos for people. And the fact that there were actually people there building something was—I was, mean, the physicists just you know scribbled on the blackboard. So for me, it was a chance to to really go back and learn about these heroes. It was like going to Alaska and, and meeting the people who had designed kayaks. So when the Institute started, they hired three people. First, they hired Beblin, who really was a great mathematician who did a whole lot to change American mathematics, but he also was leader of the ballistic group at the Aberdeen Proving Ground during World War I. So that's very important to setting the stage to why the Institute was so uh, a good place for von Neumann to end up to do this work because Veblen had been through the war and understood that that this kind of, you know, number crunching was actually an important thing. Then they hired Einstein, who was sort of the figurehead who gave them respectability. And third, they hired von Neumann, who got to hang out right next to the tea room. He was a very social guy. Uh, and and then they built this machine completely breaking the, the normal way to do this kind of a project would be you would go find some big lab full of engineers like Bell Labs or, or maybe even Xerox or someplace like that. And you would you would bring in a few mathematicians who would tell the engineers that they wanted this computer and the engineers would build it. Von Neme did the total reverse. He went to this place that was full of you know, Greek classical historians, medieval scholars and and logicians and brought in four engineers these four engineers who then built this machine so it was it was a very strange way to do it and the papers all survived and they they started with with really I mean the the only computer manual at that time was the maintenance manual for the ENIAC was really you know looking through what they had in their library that was it and teletype manuals and so on so they started from there The, the ENIAC Is often confused with the institute Institute computer was the next generation after the ENIAC the ENIAC was a calculator that only by sort of a, a real hack could be made to store any sort of instructions whereas the institute computer was the first computer that really was a logical device that stored its own instructions and everything had to be uh just thought up from nothing so here you know things like an and or gate that we take totally for granted they're sketching you know how are we going to do an and or gate and how are we going to do it with vacuum tubes what kind of gates will we you know how will they combine how will we do things like shift registers moving these numbers around and do it all with very sloppy fuzzy waveforms not none of this crisp solid state stuff it's all uh, vacuum tubes and you know getting binary numbers to run on vacuum tubes was a was a tough thing here we're figuring out how they are going to join the adder and the SR is shift register AR is arithmetic register and, and you know that's really the guts your every microchip you have now works the same way but at that time they had to look at different ways of doing it and this is one that somebody liked that's one that somebody disliked <laughs> and and the somebody was probably von neumann who came in about once a week to talk with the engineers and this this piece of paper is really the this is like Moses coming back from the mountain with the with the first commandment uh, this really is the first commandment orders let a word 40 binary digits so they're not talk, they're not saying bits yet they're saying binary digits be two orders each order is a command and an address and that's really the origin of the command line and and of a very very important distinction that up till this time the mathematicians at a place like the Institute, they they dealt with numbers numbers meant things and the, the fundamental change here is now really through this very profound sort of new concept we have numbers that do things and we're going to put numbers that mean things and numbers that do things in the same place so and, and that's what really started the whole the whole big bang that, that brings us here today when you when you actually allow numbers to go out and do things and that's, that's sort of the message is that numbers are, are have taken over the world and they're doing you know all this stuff we do is being done by these numbers uh, oppenheimer came in as director in 1947 this is robert oppenheimer whose brother built the exploratorium here uh and Gave von Neumann a lot of support because what they, the the biggest numerical problem they had was designing hydrogen bombs, and this was the machine that would do it. So that's really where the the real support for the machine came from the bomb side, even though uh, von Neumann was very clear about doing a whole lot of other science with it as well. And on the bomb side, you were dealing with these very 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 short time periods. What happens in a in a microsecond? Um, it's all over in a few microseconds. But there was another side, which was the long term side predicting the weather, doing things like that, and von Neumann was also interested there the ulam Stan ulam Richard feynman von Neumann, really the three sort of bomb guys who got together and uh, made a lot of the sense so it was a wonderful quote the, And all this was secret, so if here now finally, at least the Los Alamos guys are able to go to princeton and, and say that they're from los alamos it's not now they were just there were these the people like nick metropolis is showing up in princeton repeatedly and everyone you know what's he doing here they were working on, on what became uh the monte carlo method of of taking a very difficult problem and, and following just some statistical paths and so this was a very great problem for this new computer to do this this is the actually the flow charts that were the first case of this was done on the ENIAC before the institute machine was even finished, and now printing out. So all the sort of things we still suffer with in computing today were all there at the at the very dawn. This is 1947. Uh, that this new method is based on a vocabulary. So this is the sort of first beginnings of computer language, a set of orders which is in, in two levels: the background coding and the problem coding. So that's really the the, the, the first you know hint of an operating system. The conventional view has the ENIAC at the root of everything and the Institute IAS computer way up on one of the trunks. Part of that is because all this bomb stuff was secret. The historians didn't really I think know till more recently how uh, and so my job in a sense or my prejudice is is trying to move the IAS project further down on the trunk which it really was. It was really very closely involved with the ENIAC from the beginning. The sort of smoke screen you know the the what went in the press wasn't that we're building this machine to design bombs it was a, it was going to be used for weather prediction and it was used for weather prediction and really everything the fact that you can go to cnn and get a good three-day forecast is, is, is actually the the algorithms that were developed on this machine which was bringing to life what lewis richardson worked on in world war one which was a, a, an, he proposed this imaginary Computer of, of sixty four thousand people like yourselves in a giant theater, and each person would represent one cell in the global weather, and you would pass uh, equations back and forth and solve them. And then you, act, if you had, he figured if you had sixty four thousand good mathematicians, you could you could do this fast enough to keep up with the weather itself. And and he also he also did a ele- he was an electronics guy, and this was his model for. So this this sort of answers the, the 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 you know the huge issue in computer science is, is it, the two religious issues are are you know artificial intelligence and free will and and so he makes it clear that you can you know just with this simple thing you can have some you can have a mind that has free will but is only capable of two ideas and and everything else is just a question of degree um, and von Neumann was also very clear to credit Alan Turing, who was the, the the person who who, who really brought, you know more than more than anyone got all the ideas right in the in the first place. So and Turing was in Princeton in 1936 37 when he wrote this great paper that really was the first to, to show that with any computing machine that can do arithmetic can can do anything. It just may take a very long time, but you have to. You, the question has to be asked in a rigorous way, and so if the, you can have problems where the question uh, is very simple but the answer is very hard to compute, so you you have to build more processors, or you can have questions that are are easy to compute but the question is very hard to ask, and then you hire more programmers, and that's sort of the battle we we've, we've been in. Where where now you know it takes twelve thousand programmers at Microsoft just to ask the question that your four ninety nine Computer can now answer because the processors have, have gone way ahead of the the programming and Turing's ideas go back to, to Hobbes in the in the showing that you can always take these ideas back one step further and Hobbes really formulated Turing's thesis, but in you know in seventeenth century english not uh, not the language of logic that if you can do arithmetic, you can do logic and if you can do logic you can then if you're just work step by step. You can do anything that, that you can think. And Hobbes owed a lot of this to Leibniz, who produced this manuscript on a written on a train in 1679, where he shows that you you can do all this stuff with binary, and you can you can do it even without wheels or gears or anything like that. You can do it with marbles running down tracks, which is something that that so. He is really inventing the shift register. The fact, that if simply if you can shift binary digits, you can do all this mathematics, and that's something that, that you could build, like at the Exploratorium, with a million ball bearings, and once a day you would, you would solve a simple problem, and all the, the kids could watch. It would be a really fun thing to do. So the shift register that at the institute they reinvented the shift register. They were really just reinventing what Leibniz did, but they were doing it with with electrons, which move much faster. Uh, and now this is so. That's Leibniz in 1679, and that's von Neumann in 1945. So they're really, von well, Neumann is just picking up where Leibniz left off and trying to, you know, how are we going to do an adder? They argued a lot. I mean, it, it was a big difference trying to do an adder with six vacuum tubes or eight vacuum tubes or nine vacuum It all came down to how many vacuum tubes you needed because uh, they used a lot of power and they, they got hot. And then the, the key thing, you have a, an arithmetic unit, a, a central control. Remember, so that's, that's the CPU, the RAM, and the uh, in, and the input-output. And Willis Ware, who worked at RAND, really with the, with the comment, I think sums it all up. The question of whether von Neumann deserves credit for all these ideas. No, he was sort of the orchestra conductor who put a lot of other people's ideas together. Uh, they weren't all his ideas. They weren't original. There were huge court cases over whether they were his ideas or not. Um, and it, it, it really doesn't matter at this point. Some of the ideas, particularly on, on, the, on the hardware side, came from Vladimir Zvorka, the Russian in the middle there who brought us television, particularly color television, worked for RCA. And all the first... The Institute originally, they, they said, well, well, we'll support this computer project as long as you don't build it here. And von Neumann said, well, we'll build it at RCA. And RCA said, you know, Zorkin said, well, you build it here and we'll, suppl- we'll do all the electronics work. You won't need any guys with soldering guns at the Institute. You do the logic, we'll do the hardware. You do the software, we'll do the hardware side. And then RCA, of course, somebody came in from their patent department and said, well, if you're building this here, we want patents. And it all became very complicated. The end result was they, they moved the whole thing back to the Institute. And so this is the, the, really the, again, the central. Key things to any all the computing we do today: a a clock running at a faster and faster cycle. The institute clock was was variable between two kilocycles and 16 kilocycles. Now we're into you know megacycles and gigahertz. And that words, which now you know now are are addresses and orders are handled in memory just like numbers. So there's no distinction between between data and instructions. And that's the that's what really starts, the whole vicious circle where the thing takes off out of control. They, The key was memory. You had to have a place to... There's two kinds of bits in the universe. There's, A bit is really any distinction you can make between two things. And there's bits that represent differences in time and there's bits that represent differences in space. And all a Turing machine does or any computer is just translate between these two kinds of bits. Take sequences and... Put them into memory as structure and take things out of memory and put them back into sequences and if you can do that fast you can do all kinds of things but how do you do that with vacuum tubes the RCA answer this is Jan Reichman at RCA RCA was going to do this essentially an integrated circuit in a tube this mock-up tube that never worked uh, was going to contain originally contained 4096 bits so it really was essentially a, a memory chip in a tube when they finally got it working, um, the version they finally got working was 256 bits. And that, those tubes are called selectrons. They actually ran the, the ran version of the Institute machine until 1970. So it was very effective um, in a way von Neumann was, was, that's in some ways why this old von Neumann architecture works so well on our microprocessors, because it really was designed from the beginning with the assumption that there would be this sort of plug-in memory chip um, as the basis of the machine but doing it with glass and wire and if, if it wasn't totally evacuated it didn't work um, took them about three years more than they than they had accounted for and it really it's um, so this Electron didn't go that's their budget <laughs> those costs for the mathematicians that's a mathematician for a year that's 6000 a year and the Computers are, are people who compute by hand, but you could get a lot in those days. You can see you could, you could get Kurt Gödel for twenty-four hundred a year, so two hundred a month, and, and Erdős is seven fifty a year. So, so these you could get a lot of mathematicians for for eighteen thousand uh, dollars, <laughs> and. And you got the, the patent rights for nothing. I mean, this is Willis Ware, who probably, you know, single-handedly did more engineering, patentable engineering things that they're in the modern computer. But here he's, he's selling his, all his patent rights to the Institute for $1. So it was, it was an inexpensive project. Uh, but where to do it? The Institute had three floors. This was right after the war. The, top, the fourth floor was occupied by the League of Nations Economic Division. We'd been kicked out of Geneva. Um, and the economists, so all the historians had already been squashed down into the third floor, and there, there were no other wings then. So the solution was to use this little closet next to Goodall's office. Goodall, Goodall had a, was distinguished enough he had an office for a secretary, this little office with the arrow, but he was so nervous he didn't want a secretary, you know, nearby. So that office was empty. And they, the computer project started there. So this this very fundamental report on the logical architecture was done in Gödel's office. And there's there's an importance there because Gödel really had, uh, had formulated, in some ways, the origins of software. It was Gödel's idea in 1930 and 31 to, that you could assign everything a number. You could take every concept you could ever think of, and you could give it its own characteristic number. And then you could do arithmetic with those numbers. And that's really how he proved his sort of is some of his inconsistency incompleteness theorem. And that's really what software did was give every assign everything an address. And, and now, you know, if you if whatever OS you use, it's this huge, you know, 100 million line number. Uh, and so Gödel's vision really came true. Then when they brought the engineers in actually, okay, have we got to start building hardware and soldering things? They couldn't couldn't do that upstairs. So the administration says they can they can they can have the the room next to the laboratory in the basement, which is it, it, very interesting is now if you go down and find that room, it's where the routers are for the main institute. Um, so it stayed in the business. But even then, the historians complained. The, this is Benjamin Merritt, who's the great uh, Greek. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the. the, the Engineers are moving into the basement. So and then the budget starts going up. So it's now it's $4,700. And then this is, this is the camel's nose in the tent, the first $4 for electrical work. And, and, and so the core group, Julian Bigelow, who was Norbert Wiener's engineer who came down from MIT, Herman Goldstein, who was the chief engine, the, really the, the head of the ENIAC project, Oppenheimer and von Neumann. So they had a, they had a tremendous sort of constellation of talent. People here, and these engineers who were, they all, when the project folded, they went out all over the world and really spread the, the sort of gospel of computing to all these other labs, to uh, Illinois, to Israel, to RAND out here in Santa Monica to, you know, basically it really was the birth of the the modern generation. And the software, the coding was done mainly by women who were very unrecorded were paid very little, $275 a month uh, and actually wrote, you know, wrote all the early programs and debugged them by hand and and, and it's really sort of a lost story. These guys were the, the really the original nerds um who, who got in trouble right away, so that's that's nothing's new but But the, the programmers got their revenge. The, 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 the historical footnote to all this is if you go to the institute today and if, if you're a historian working on, you know, trade in medieval Venice or something and you, you're working late finishing your manuscript and you, and you really want a cup of tea or coffee late at night you have to go to the Shimoni building. It's the only building that's open 24 hours and has tea and coffee. And that's the building built by, by Charles Shimoni, the, the programmer. So <laughs> <laughs> now the historians have to, the tables are reversed. But at that time, having people with soldering guns was, was completely out of bounds. And they really built this thing there. And doing it with this, you know, trying to get binary behavior out of, out of hot vacuum tubes was, was, was very... Rare region where you get binary behavior. Most of it is a sloppy sort of never, never land. They used a lot of uh, again shift register of 6J6 tubes. Just most of the computer was 6J6s, which was a standard, cheap radio tube. They found they were more reliable than buying more expensive tubes, just because so many of them were produced, they were more consistent. Um, And all these architectures, which at that time was was still von Neumann saw the computer more as this sort of cellular system. That it hadn't yet been totally taken over and colonized by the order codes and the arithmetic unit. He saw this, this address matrix as things where, where you could do different architectures, and then it sort of crystallized into one very standard architecture. That's the total number of tubes. So you can, uh, you know, 3,474 tubes, which was, at that time was, was very little. ENIAC had 18,000. And you know how, how rapidly tubes fail. So the mean time between failure was very low. The note at the bottom says, Fred, if you have time, please tighten all nuts. <laughs> so, and, then, and then parallel to working on all this hardware, the software guys were writing, were already writing the software for the machine that didn't exist yet. So that if the machine ever got working, they would have codes to run on it. And, and all that stuff was published so that people in the other universities and labs could also start working at the same time. And that's what gave this whole thing a a jump start. That if it had been done by the government, it would have been done very slowly. If it had been done in one of the industrial labs, there would have been patent issues and so on. So the idea of doing it at the institute was to just do it as science and distribute it freely. And then if you look at these reports, if you look at the the interlibrary loan cards, you're seeing they're going to RCA, IBM, National Cash Register Company. So that's... Uh, how the ideas spread the machine itself was was a beautiful work of engineering I mean, it was it was elegant it wasn't some big ungainly thing it was it was essentially a microprocessor but just large for the time but it was built uh, bigelow was a real classical engineer so it was built like an engine these are the the sort of specifications 40 bit words used 16 kilowatts, which again was very little at that time, 24 microsecond addition time. So very, very, very fast. They're starting to build a magnetic drum at that time. The input output is is punch cards and teletype. Uh, There's one with those cylinders. These, the memory is all in those tubes. So when the Selectron didn't show up, what could they do with existing equipment and that's James Pomerine, He's also still alive. So he's holding what's a, a standard. They took a standard five-inch oscilloscope tube, and using the phenomena, like if you turn off your CRT monitor, it's, there's some static on the screen for a minute or two. They, the static is slightly different on the on the bright spots versus the dark spots. So putting this amplifier on the face, you could you could go back and you could hit a bright spot, and then it'll stay there for a hundred you know, 100 milliseconds or something at maximum, and then you can go back to it, hit it again, and you get a little pulse of secondary current. So they found that they actually were able to store a 32 by 32 array, so, you know, 1,000 kilobit on the face of one of these little tubes. But it became, you know, it was very, very sensitive to electromagnetic disturbances and took a very clever clock. So you have this millisecond clock doing the refreshing, and then you have this microsecond clock going back, and so it became the first... Random access memory. You could put a bit anywhere you wanted at any time and get it back out. You didn't have to wait for it in some kind of serial cycle. But the difference between a dot and a dash is this sort of very fuzzy distinction. I mean, that's, that's the ideal, not the way it really is. And each, so each tube has its own individual logbook page to keep track of its failures and idiosyncrasies. The, one of the failures was if there's this tiny speck of dust in the tube, it might stop working. And then the first thing you do is hit it with a hammer and try and shake the dust loose. And So they, the way this worked was the, the, company, the two companies that made these kinds of tubes shipped every tube they produced went to the Institute. And then they tested them, and they sent the 80% that weren't good back. And those went to normal guys putting them in oscilloscopes. But the Institute got sort of the, the cream of the crop. Input and output teletype. Uh, equipment so it took a long time to load the memory of the machine which was like this really built like a v40 engine 20 cylinders on each side and and that's really how it worked it was, it was like a, a v40 engine with overhead valves and, and overhead cams and the overhead is the arithmetic and the memory register and the um, shift registers and down below is the memory so and it had a lot of horsepower It had four 40,000 bits, which at that time, so that's exactly the memory of a Windows icon. It's exactly the number of bits in it. And so all that great, all this great science was done in just this. So if you look at it as a, as a 3D matrix, it's 32 by 32 by 40 bits high. So this tiny little address space, whereas now, you know, this computer has 100,000 times the memory and you know, and, and, and we're all connected together in this great. So this is a wire drive. the ancestor of the disk drive, trying to get stuff in faster than teletype using magnetic wire on bicycle wheels. But that's the sort of waveform. So you're still dealing with this very fuzzy digital information. If you start going too fast, you'll lose bits. Then they went to a magnetic drum, which was, which was more reliable. This is circuits for starting to use. They were rewiring IBM machines, which was illegal, getting IBM machines. And first, IBM came down to, to, like, you know, throw the book at them and take the equipment back. And then the guy said, hey, wait a minute. These guys are really doing something. We we could, we might make money on this. And they sure did. Uh, and, you know, all the different forms of input and output. And they did graphics. So this is um, 1948. One of the they even they'd got the memory register going, but the computer wasn 't running yet, but they started outputting it as a bitmap into the cathode ray tube, so that 's as far as I know the first computer graphics and now you, you see industrial light and magic how far they 've gone with just those few bits and the so the situation was the reverse of, of today you know i'm we're looking at a screen that's pixels that are just a representation of the memory that's that's Somewhere else. And in in this time, the memory actually was the pixels on the face of the tube. So the display started out as the memory, and then later the the display became the display. But they were, so they're right away realizing we can actually display. And von Neumann is thinking very far ahead about, you know, he knows that all these vacuum tubes are going to fail every few minutes, the hardware is sloppy, but how can we do reliable? How can we organize this sloppy stuff into reliable? Computers, and that, in a sense, it was a problem that if we hadn't, if we hadn't got this really reliable solid-state equipment, we would have gone farther with von Neumann's ideas. But no, nobody really needed those ideas once we got reliable computers. The guys back at the uh, institute in the lab getting this thing to work, they had to get it running with these. With this, you know, sort of mean time between failures was about eight minutes. Uh, very long loading time, two two minutes running. 90 minutes loading from IBM constant question every every time there was a failure you every computation was done twice it was duplicated and if the if the these hexadecimal codes are checksums for the entire memory you keep a checksum and if if the memory was not in the same state if you didn't get the same answer and had the memory in the same state after doing it the second time you did it a third time or a fourth time or a fifth time and then you tried to figure out was it human or machine that the memory was always going bad. I mean, the memory, you know, there'd be days when the memory wouldn't work. Uh, it would turn into garbage. You would lose that distinction between the normal dot and the normal dash. And then you had to figure out which tube was it. There's 40 tubes. Uh, a lot of no use went home. And, and, and no, no manuals. And... <laughs> So, and they kept track of all this. The beautiful thing is that someone had the, the sense to save these logbooks. So every, all this was new. Every calculation was was logged. I mean, they just called it general arithmetic, which was a, mainly bomb calculations. But they're not. Telling, and, 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 and then occasionally a demonstration for Dr. von Neumann. The, the machine was originally known as the Maniac for. They were making fun of the ENIAC. So it was the mathematical, numerical, integrator, and calculator. But then the, the institute was embarrassed by that, so they, they said, stop calling it the maniac. But the Los Alamos, so then the, the copy that was built at Los Alamos became known as the maniac. Machine or human? There was always a question. And, and there were, some people had very good instincts. Uh, Hedy Selberg, one of we could, could really tell, was it a code problem or was it a hardware problem? Found the trouble in the code. Code error, machine not guilty. <laughs> right. And, and, and M, MC is master control. And then there's there mechanical problems, so, you know, burning V belts, and things that, that you really don't have to suffer today. <laughs> And here the IBM machine is putting a tar-like substance on the cards. The the tar is actually tar from the roof melting. The the air air conditioning is failing. And and this one's a little hard to read, but a mouse, this is 4.50 in the morning. So the the, the bomb calculations ran all night. The bomb calculations and and the sort of artificial life stuff ran all night long. So a mouse climbed into the blower behind the regulator rack, set blower to vibrating result, no more mouse than a... Heck of a racket. And here, here lies mouse, born, question mark, died, 4.50 a.m., May 25th. And, and one, of, one of the engineers has written, Here lies Marston mouse, which is a, a dig at Marston Morse, who was the, one of the pure mathematicians who, who had objected to the computer being built at the institute. And so this is high speed. Which is so high speed was 16 kilocycles. You could you could change, you could dial the speed up. It was not like a, our computers that just run at fixed speed. You could actually pedal it one click of the clock at a time. If, if things weren't working right, you could just go click 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 and and follow these marbles as they fell down the shift registers. And low speed was two kilocycles. <laughs> and here, you know, guy can You've now duplicated both results. So what if you get the same? Different results twice. Now, this is the third different output. I know when I'm licked. Machine ran fine. Code isn't. That's really the, the story of our of our lives. And occasionally, everything went, went fine. And they did work on meteorology. They did, did a lot. After the bombs, sort of bombs came first, then came meteorology, then came, came stellar evolution and things like that. Uh, but... This was very ambitious to try and predict the weather using 5,000 bits, bytes of memory. So it's January 1954, they're still trying to pr- get a forecast for November 6, 1953. And so so they, they, they basically, I mean, the, the, the short story of the weather program was they, they spent six years trying to predict a hurricane that had already happened and, and running and rerunning the same thing. But, but they did pretty well. So here they've got a one hour forecast, finally. And you know they, that's the real, and that's the predicted, and they, they got them to match up. We don't know how many you know lesser results weren't published, but but they were also fighting the real weather. The New, Princeton, New Jersey, is probably the worst place to try and do sensitive electronics. It's damp, it's, it's hot, insufferably hot, humid, thunderstorms. So thunderstorms would totally, it was you know completely wipe out the memory for days. Now they're, they're trying to do a 3 level forecast, 24 hours, and these started to actually work. So the fact that you get them today is is really a credit to, to these pioneers. Then they did evolution of stars, which was similar. It was irresistible. Once you had the stuff in place to do bombs, you could actually do stars. So they're looking at the evolution of how stars evolve over, over you know, millions of years. And then to keep the historians happy, who you know were probably still complaining, They ran the whole clock, astronomical clock, backwards to do this great table of of positions of stars and planets in the time that the historians were interested in. So historians could go back to an old account that said, well, Jupiter was here when when something such happened and and figure out dates. And they even did traffic problems, looking at if you were going to build freeways, how could you do lane changes and interchanges and optimize traffic flow, sort of the the beginnings of, of network optimization. And then they also did bombs, which were not supposed to be in the logbooks, but here somebody sketched an explosion. And they did, most interesting to me, and this is, this is sort of going to lead into the future, uh, Von Neumann invited any, anybody who had a really interesting problem, he said, well, come, come here and, and, you know, you can have machine time and do it. So Nils Barricelli, who was a genetic, uh, a mathematical biologist who was a viral geneticist, he wrote a proposal to come and do uh, genetic experiments actually put numbers in the computer and try and let them let them have these cycles all night from from 12 midnight till 8 in the morning um, and see if they would evolve see if you could actually create an artificial universe in which uh, numbers would become more complex very very way 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 ahead of his time so again to do this with the memory they had was 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 hopelessly ambitious um But so this is the year is 1953. It's the year that the structure of DNA has been elucidated by Watson and Crick and Franklin. And so it's working from the opposite direction. The the molecular biologists are trying to decode the code that that brought things to life. And Vericelli is going the other way, saying, well, I'm just going to start with this very pure matrix and try and encode something and see if it grows and becomes lifelike. So just starting with this matrix of binary numbers and, and letting um, things emerge. And he had a great rapport with the computer. He, the other people would work in teams and they would have to have engineers, but often the logbooks, Vericelli comes on at midnight and, and no problems till eight in the morning when the other guys show up. Um, so here, I'm not going to read these, but this gives you a picture of what he, who's seeing this. Already in 1953, he was seeing the digital universe as a, as a universe with its own laws and possibly eventually its own forms of life. And So he ran all these generations. He would have to stop to let the other guys come on the machine. And then he would restart his his projects and kept going. As long as he had access to the machine, he kept these things running. And these are the results. They look a lot like, like what we see from Wolfram these days, more recently. And he published this. It's not, it's not unknown. It just was published... In journals that other people didn't read. And it was, it was just too far ahead of its time and was sort of forgotten. And he had a sense of humor. He saw that, you know, people would not take you serious if you said you were going to try and create life. Uh, you know, if it's that easy, why don't you do it yourself? Uh, but he asked some very good questions because he was a biologist. He looked at real viruses and he saw what could happen in the computer as similar to the sort of parasitic the first stage would be parasites, like like the simplest life forms we know are parasites. And he saw that the universe would have to stay diverse. He didn't have a big enough universe, so he ran dip multiple universes and then let them exchange code. Um, so as far as the universe was concerned, it, it didn't know that it was being stopped and restarted. And so one day he would run one universe and another day, another one. And then on the third day, put the two together. Um, and all sorts of interesting things happened. I mean, he... Was he, was he mad or was he, was he a visionary? It's hard to say. He output all this on IBM cards. Um, here he sees a, a, a virus starting to infect the cards. So that's, I think, as far as I know, the first, the first computer virus infected IBM cards. And so the output was in these form of these beautiful, he, he, he arrayed the IBM cards out. So this was sort of a printout of the memory and then, and then photographs, print, contact printed on a blueprint machine and these things survived. Um, so if you he would look at this and say oh here 's a parasite, and here 's a thing we can 't really see it. We have to uh, have his interpretation of it. So these are different rules he's sort of setting and he he says very clearly that you the, you have to resist the temptation of 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 changing the rules of the universe halfway through. You have to just let the universe go at its uh you know, it either works or it doesn't. You sort of can't, you can't play God and change the rules halfway through. So here he's going, you know, a couple thousand generations. But he realizes no matter what you do, these numbers, they're just numbers in the computer. They're just genes. They they have no phenotype. They're not doing anything. And what he saw was that you had to let these numbers go out and do something. And actually, that's what happened in the real world, that the, that the certain codes became useful for doing arithmetic and everybody, they got distributed to other computers to do more arithmetic and other co- Eventually a code became a, a word processor and everybody had to have word processors and then came VisiCalc and, um, and everything went from there. And this really what, what Baricelli imagined happened in the real world that, that these numbers were able to do useful things in the real world and get reproduced for doing useful things. And numbers became money and numbers became music and, and pornography and all the other things that have propagated. So, Uh, so well are actually in the universe inside the computer. They just are these patterns of of numbers. And he saw, of course, the the amazing analogies between that and how the world of RNA and DNA evolved. He had, had, I think, a theory about the evolution of DNA that I think is still um, very plausible that, that he saw Nucleotides as being, he saw everything as alive. It was sort of like Richardson's mind, only capable of two ideas that even molecules had a certain life of their own, and that these nucleotides were like social insects that went out and collected amino acids and brought them back to their nest, sort of like ants. And that these very advanced molecules, you wonder how could a molecule like that ever evolve, sort of evolved like colonies of, of social insects. And that if you really what he's seeing here is exactly what we do today. that We send computer applications to each other over. We transmit programs between computers. And he's sort of looking at it the other way around. And is, it, is this beginning of life? He didn't at all. He never saw what he was doing as sort of simulating life. It wasn't sort of SimCity kind of thing. It was this was the beginnings of something new and something else. And he saw evolution itself as a computational process and i think that's one of the key long now ideas that, that our whole darwinian evolutionary system really is a a big computer it's doing a massively parallel computation that is solving certain very difficult problems how do you fly how do you swim how do you think how do you have children those are all problems that evolution solves by doing this this exchange of information and that that has its own intelligence. It has sort of a mind of its own. Um, and Baricelli, he, he you know, he in a way was mad, thinking that at some point these two forms of intelligence might become aware of each other. And that's again, it's it's it's, it's hard, it, you're dangerous ground to say that. But that's something like that is going on with computing today. That we're starting to process massive amounts of biological genetic information in. Computers and these two universes actually are starting to communicate. We're, there's people running codes on their desktops that are actually now coding for proteins and becoming uh, drugs and becoming DNA, and, and eventually, at some point, will become living organisms. So he saw this, you know, that the germs of this were starting. Um, this was his last published paper before he died sort of a very frightening title that you know what if these things develop their own language and technology he really he really saw the the process in the computer as as repeating what had happened originally with the origins of life when I went to the Institute and started digging through this stuff there were these defined known seven boxes of unknown material and then and on the the last day I was there my first visit the archive I said Mr. Dyson I think we found another box it was a box that was completely black with dust and the top was was World War II teletype repair manuals, and in the bottom were these um, boxes of the IBM cards for one of Baricelli's universes, with the uh, source code for the whole thing. So it's all there, like a preser- it's like the um, mosquito in the in the amber for Jurassic Park, the preserved with the instructions to the engineers on how to run this drum code because they they would run it for him, uh, and that's the it would take a lot of deciphering to figure this out, but you, I think you could actually recode this on, on some kind of emulator and end up with a screensaver or something. And then the note from the engineers, there must be something about this code that you haven't explained yet. And, and that's what von Neumann was, was thinking about. When von Neumann died, he died tragically young. I think he was pacing himself to have another 30 years. He went to work for the Atomic Energy Commission to sort of try and solve the, are we going to blow up the world problem? And then he gave... He resigned from the Institute. He accepted a position at UCLA under the condition that he could bring in biologists. He was going to bring a lot of biologists to UCLA and do computational biology. What survives from that were his unfinished notes for his theory of self-reproducing automata, which is interesting, a chapter titled is Turing and then not Turing. So he, he knew both the power of the Turing machine and that there was something beyond the Turing machine, that biology was doing something else, and I think he was going to combine the two into a unified theory that he wasn't going to publish till it was complete. He did his last lecture was published as a computer in the brain," uh, which people have, I think sort of misinterpreted that he was saying computers are like brains and brains are like computers. He was more interested in the, in the question of how, how do brains with all this very sloppy hardware? Very sloppy, slow hardware do very reliable, fast computations, and why do computers with you know with more reliable hardware fail? So he was looking at how the brain operated differently with this language that was not at all digital; it was statistical. And I think that's again one of the messages for the future is that we we've been so successful with this strictly deterministic digital computation where every address uh, is is strictly defined, like that original matrix, and we. Um, our codes are exactly, they either, you know, they work or they have bugs. But, but there's totally other forms of computation, which is what the, how the brain does it with just a very statistical approach, what Veneman what called pulse frequency coding, where it's important that there's no language or code. It's just a case of what is connected to what and how fast is the pulse rate. It's more like music. It's a pulse mm-hmm. frequency thing. And I think that's what... Um, if the Internet as a whole is doing any kind of computation, that's one of the levels that could be happening. Sort of what's connected to what is important. Brewster's is a good example of that. Really looking at, at, you know, I guess what Alexa did. I mean, we sort of established some metrics of, of what you're connected to and how often you connect counts and if you start accounting for that you, you get very interesting behavior and that's, that's essentially what the brain does and that's probably why music is, resonates so much with us because somehow music brings to life the ability to keep track of all these different uh, pulse codings and sense of time and build sort of this longer now if you hear a really great symph- you know the guy who wrote the symphony had to conceive that whole temporal thing at once so but Neumann was, I think, going to synthesize a lot of that with technology and biology. It's, it's I think, a big part of the future of computing is to uh, build systems, whether we do it consciously or whether it happens nat- naturally, systems that are very large and very robust and free from the, the coding failures that sort of plague our normal or some of our day-to-day computing. So I think he, I think he was going to synthesize these two together. He also had done Amazing! I mean, a whole lifetime of work in game theory and economics, which is a, which is another way of looking at the same question: Why are economic systems so robust and reliable? That's Oscar Morgenstern, his collaborator, and then the, the sort of Bill Joy side of things: Can we survive this stuff that we create? Once we know how to blow up the world, how do we socially avoid doing it? Uh, and then he left for the Atomic Energy Commission. So the institute was facing: you know, What do we do with this? Von Neymis started this project, and. What von Neumann wanted to do was create a department of computer science. And, and, okay, now we have the computer. We don't need to invent the computer again. We've invented it, but let's bring in scientists and work on all these problems we can solve with computing. And the institute, basically, the decision was no. Um, And this was one of the answers from the review committee. (laughs) Um, Which... Which is what von Neumann wanted to do. He he wanted to go ahead and revolutionize all these other fields with the power of computing. So by then, the the computer at the Institute had become more or less routine. All troubles were code troubles, which is sort of the machine had stabilized, and the problems were more mainly in the software. Finally, they pulled the plug. So July 15th, midnight, 1958, Julian H. Bigelow, he runs the last calculation, was actually a physics problem, and they they pulled the plug and turned it off um bigelow's the, the guy in the middle really made the thing happen he was the guy who, the guy who, who could build things had you know very much understood i think as most people on that project did, they did, they didn't foresee the personal computer revolution or anything like that but they knew that the world would never be the same once once the ability to calculate so quickly got loose in the world and and that's the world we live in today where it goes from here um, I, despite how I was introduced, I, I mean, my view of the future is that it's so interesting. All you uh, you know, all we need to do is wait and see. But that predictions, um, you know, predictions are very hard. We can see that. So all I can really tell you is that these, these numbers are, you know, in my view, they're alive and they have a life of their own inside all these machines. And despite our best efforts um you know we can speed that up and we can help and, and many of us in this room have done things that have really helped those numbers leap ahead in their evolution but they they are on their own path and and it's going to you know what what's happened with the internet and so on is is going to change the world as much as what happened at the institute 50 years ago and and, and predictions are very hard to do but there's two sides to things there's the, the universe inside the computer. So you look at those numbers are living their lives trying to be, the best thing they can do is be useful. If they're useful, if they can solve a problem, um, they will get reproduced and they will get to go out and mate with other code and propagate and do all these things that that, that these numbers want to do. And then from our side, there's the, there's the much larger architectural side that we are plugging all these computers together and wireless and, and barcoding every last, Item in the universe, which, again, Gödel had suffered under this horrible Austro-Hungarian bureaucracy where everybody would, you know, take a number and wait. And I'm sure that's where some of the germs of his ideas about about numbering everything. And now we live in a world that, that, that would have been, I mean, Gödel would have, you know, he was viewed as paranoid, but if he had saw this happening, he would have truly been trying That, that we, we number everything, every box of Cheerios, every you know, everything has a number, and all these numbers are accounted for, and and that's the 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 larger world where where you know the whole computational system is actually attached to real things and doing real things. And that's Stan Ulam's eulogy for von Neumann, that he he died in 1954 uh, or 1957, so he at age 54, so he just saw you know he saw the promised land, but he didn't he didn't get to to live in it, which is a great tragedy. I'm going to end talking about really the, the, I think the patron saint of Long Now Foundation, who is Robert Hooke, who, like Danny Hillis, who was here last night but not tonight, was a clockmaker and a, he, a microscopist. He, he did, he looked at the very small, he looked at the very large, um, he gave this wonderful talk to the Royal Society on the explanation of memory, how the organs made use of the mind, maybe mechanically understood. So memory is the key thing. It's the key to, to long now. It's the key to computers working. And he, again, he sort of, again, this is sort of the Turing machine that thinking you have to have a memory and you have to have, he called it the soul, which is really the processor. You have to be able to have a processor that can process Bits that go in and out of memory, and the way he saw it was as a spiral. That the soul is at the center, and your memories collect in this big spiral, and you have a sense of time by sort of how thick the spiral is between you and the uh, real world. And and now we, again, we we live in this this world that Hook imagined. Where I mean, in our you know, if you really want to give someone, you, you'll give them a CD-ROM, which is this incredible, real, really like an old phonograph record in a way. I mean, a spiral of information that represents something that your, maybe your life's work over a lot of time compressed into this uh, digital memory. And Long Now, I think, is, is working very creatively already and more creatively in the future what Brewster's doing of preserving these memories. So we essentially have a collective organism that uh, is remembering everything, for better or worse. I mean, the email that you didn't want, somebody else still has. And sooner or later, you know, they can they can go to Brewster and they can get it back. and And... Is that good? Is that bad? Do we have the processing power to make use of that? We don't now, but the search searching is sort of getting as fast as storage is getting larger. Searching is getting better. So this whole thing is growing into, into, into a very large, enormous system. I mean, there's, You know, astronomical number of Turing machines all reading each other's tapes. And then somebody like Brewster saying, I'm, I'm going to collect all the tape and and it's going to be there forever. And, and that, that really changes the game. Uh, Richard Waller, who published this, had to, you know, this was a, a delicate time. He had to, to make sure he put in a disclaimer that he wasn't uh, trying to, you know, usurp the power of the soul. Uh, and, and Hook's final thought, which is that different creatures have a different sense of time. You know, some computers run at two kilocycles and some run at two gigahertz and they're, go- they're going to have this different sense, like a fruit fly live, you know, lives a week, we live 80 or 100 years, um, the idea of the sensible moment, that we're each aware of, of we, we're sort of given this sensible moment, and some kinds of organisms might have a much larger, longer sensible moment than we do. And that's going to be a real problem. If we ever do contact other intelligences in the universe, it's, it would be an exceptional I mean it would be remarkable if they happened to speak English. And it 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 would be even more remarkable if they happened to think at the same time scale we think at. I mean, we're very limited by the time scale we think at and the, the intelligence could well be out there just thinking very, very much faster or very, very much slower and it wouldn't mean anything to us. So clocks are important because clocks are sort of this common pacing time and and that's what what long now is here to do and I'm Delighted, I was invited, and now we can have questions. Thank you. Thank you George.
0: Mike, thank you, George. Um, while you're writing questions and handing them to the guys in yellow hats to bring them up, <clears throat> bring them up to the front. I just mentioned a brief pitch that. Uh, Next month, February 13th, in this same room, finally, we get the same space, uh, Jim Dewar from RAND. One never hears from people at RAND. This is a guy who's been with RAND for 25 years and is now in charge of a brand new institute with a great deal of funding whose job is to think from 25 to 200 years in time span. And uh, he's bringing some methodologies which are basically new and very interesting. And he'll be here talking about... Uh, uh, you know, long-term policy analysis. Uh, then for the thrill seekers, March 12th, second Friday of March, Rusty Schweikert, the Apollo uh, 8 astronaut, will be here uh, talking about the work he's done for the last two years, figuring out the asteroid threat over the next uh, 100,000 years, moving this 10,000-year time frame into its proper order, and what one does about it and this is pretty interesting because one you're starting to really think actuarially over the very long time frame and look at the power law uh you know here we have earthquakes in in the bay area Uh, asteroids hit from time to time and they change everything and in order to do something about it you have to think long term and be able to act long term and head them off a question i have just to start george is to go back to your title and Richard Feynman reference. I mean, at the end of uh, Richard Feynman's talk, at least a, a decade or so later, people were ready to go out and start inventing nanotechnology of what really is this space that you see at the top that has plenty of room and what should people do with it?
2: Well, I, I mean, I think people are doing they're doing a lot with Yeah. I mean, obviously, the Internet is the greatest most obvious example just connecting we had all these processors and suddenly they're all connected together into this much larger system but then within that all sorts of things which can grow I mean the ability is there now to uh, you know monitor ecosystems monitor technology just I mean really the, the, the world is open in a way I mean I think a wife has opportunities it hasn't had for um, since the Cambrian Explosion or so on, to move uh, into totally new spaces. Uh, obviously, the, the genetic side is, is extremely important. The fact that we are um, sequencing all these genetic sequences and putting them into computers and manipulating them, and they're, and they're going to start coming out. In 1959, when, when Feynman gave that talk, um, computer memory was a dollar a bit for high-speed memory. And that's... You know, that's now uh, the, the cost of DNA memory now is way, way less than that. I mean, you could, if, you, if you pick up science magazine that, that classifies in the back pages, it's, it's now in the order of 10 or 20 cents a bit to read and write into real DNA. And you, you can just do that with a credit card. You don't need a lab or anything else. And, and, and that's an amazing thing that, that, that I mean, we really we own two big funds of information. We've got the information in our minds and the information in our DNA and computers started out, you know, reading and writing very slowly into our minds. And, you know, the mouse was a big advance. You could really read what the person wanted to do a lot quicker than, than, than typing and so on. And, and it's, it's going back and forth. The, the screens get better so that the bandwidth is greatly increasing and very much the same with DNA. A few years ago, we were reading DNA, but we weren't writing it. And now we're really quickly re- reading and writing fluently between the and the important thing about dna of course dna can be turned into 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 proteins so that world of of life i mean life used our genetic system in order to further its own you know when you say it's a gender or whatever but to to replication was very useful for life the the ability to actually replicate information led to the complexity of life forms and and life is i think going to take over this. ability to do even more faithful replication in ways we can we can only imagine. Who are the companies who are going to do that? They're gonna do it in small bits and pieces. I mean particularly in, in medical fields for medical applications and so on. But it's it's if you look at where we are now, I think it's very similar to where Feynman was in nineteen fifty nine. He's saying this is this is possible, now you guys go out and you know go out and do it. And it's it's the same with the opportunities for For good and bad. There's there's obviously downsides. I don't know if that answers your question, but but um, and in the computational world, there's just room for for very different kinds of computation to happen. It's 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 like the 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 von Neumann matrix is there um, and you can spend your whole life just doing spreadsheets and windows. But if 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 you're young and creative, you could do totally different things with it. And, And there's examples of that. But but predicting what it will be that will suddenly, you know, who would have said, maybe somebody would have, you know, Napster or something like that. Gee, just, just template-seeking information exchange would be so successful. And that's how biology does it, is, is by addressing, not by fixed address, but by template. I want the next, the next molecule that comes along and fits my template, I'm going to grab it. And that's what, you know, Napster does. The next, the next person who's got that song, I'm taking it. And and now it's songs, but it could also be, you know, programs or or code that would do anything else you wanted to do. The the sort of soup is out there and there's an opportunity to develop things that use that
1: soup. Another question is um, from Bob Spence. Could Bob Spence stand up so we, George can uh, direct it to you? Great. He said, um, history is written by the victors. Digital computing won, but where did analog computing fit into the history of it all? analog computing
2: survived a long time. I mean, there's still some things that are done by analog computers, but uh, but digital just, well, we know what happened to digital. What happened to analog? I mean, places like Convair, in, the, in my last research on this Orion project, they, the dynamics problems of how do you have this three-mass, two-spring oscillating system, they still, into the late, you know, in the 1970s, they did that. That was better done on analog computers, just big rheostat makes. But what happened to those machines now? I don't know. But they, um, there's still, I think, a few things that are done. You know, with things that actually are analog computers. But the Bay Model was a fantastic analog computer. Yeah, and and to, you know, we could now do that in in code. But it when they did it, it would have been impossible. So, I think that, I think. I hope that some of the computer museum people are, are saving some of that stuff. So this is a
1: related question by uh, Roger Anderson, could you stand so we could, there you go. He says, "Um, what fundamental ideas of computer design were not anticipated by von Neumann? That is if modern electronics were known in 1946, how well would the Institute have done?
2: So you're saying if, if they had had modern hardware? Would, yeah, I think, um, well, I think they would have done an awful lot more, but I think it would have been the same. I think they just, I think, I think or my short answer is I think they would have done more of the same, that they... I mean, the, the coding would have been able to be a lot more efficient. They had to, they'd always do these, break these big problems into little tiny pieces and run a piece and take it out of memory and put another piece in if they had a, a larger, more reliable memory. Um, I mean, they, they, there's things in von Neumann's, or the notes and journals, I mean, saying that we, you know, we're, we're never going to be able to have programs longer than, than some ridiculous lines of code. It just, they would fail. They didn't, they, they didn't think anything would be able to stay in memory that long without, collapsing I can't think of any if you can think of any I mean I, I it seems to me that all the, the the basic same way we run things now was running then it just it just was a whole lot slower and and smaller and they didn't they didn't have the input output um but what was going on in the machine was, was essentially the same. I mean, they sort of, they were doing sort of reduced instruction set. There were a lot of later instructions. Instructions went way higher and then they, then they came back lower again. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's quite a, amazing how some, I mean, some of those order codes are still the same. It's very tenacious. It's, it's, um, I think it's, it's, and whether that's an accident or just because it's so difficult to change things once you start coding it and, you know, they did things 80 bits wide because that's how many holes you could punch on a card. And we just, we just have kept that stuff.
0: Here's a question from John Cornwall. Cornwell, where is he? That's you, you hound. You're writing your own question. Is that <laughs> <huh>? great <laughs> question is what drew you to these figures in history? And are there current figures or projects that captivate you in the same way? And if so, why?
2: Okay, I mean, I, I, I was drawn to these guys as I explained because they were they were there at the institute building something, and to me as a kid who wanted to build things, and my dad couldn't, you know, he he, he could, would not be able to tell you where the spark plugs were on a car. So these guys who, who knew how to run machine tools and and plug wires together, just they were my my heroes. So I, I'm just fascinated by them, and and I think it's the same. Same with my, my later project, which was Project Orion, where these guys were going to build a spaceship. I just admired the, the people who, who worked in teams and wanted to build things. Um, and what's next, I really, I really don't know. But there's the, I'm fascinated by any of these sort of people who were the pioneers who, who broke the rules and got
1: something done. So um, another question from um, Roger Smith. Okay. Okay. Um, I heard Donald Knuth recently say that the reason he doesn't use email is that he doesn't want to keep on top of things, but rather get to the bottom of things. What are your views on ways of improving selectivity, quality over quantity of information?
2: What was the last sentence?
1: What are your views on ways of improving selectivity? That is quality over quantity of information.
2: Yeah, I think Don, I think Don is right. You know, if you stop reading your email, you're only going to hear from people who have really have something important to say and they'll find you or call you up. I mean, maybe you'll miss something, but I, I think that selectivity is is very, it's, it's a good thing. I don't, I'm not very good at it. Um, but I, I admire him for taking that approach. It sounds like Neil's Baricelli, who, who up till you know he died in 1993, but he still did everything on punched cards. He said he didn't he didn't trust any other form of recording digital data. He he wanted to know where every bit was all the time. He didn't like them, you know, shifting around and and and, and escaping on him. So he kept he kept it all on punched cards, and and probably of course kept his coding very
1: pure and 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 uh, elegant as a result. Another question a little bit more personal from David Reinhart. Okay. How did living with David Brower as a young man affect your perception of the world, if at all? It tremendously. I mean, David Brower was one of the,
2: if I had to name sort of three influential people, um, you know, next Next to my own father, I think he was almost almost next. I mean, the, the Browers basically adopted me when I was, you know, 16 years old and homeless, and and you know they brought me into their household here in the East Bay and and uh, introduced me to people who became very important in my life. And I, I owe David. I mean, he 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 sort of extracted my first book from me when when I didn't even know there was a book there. Uh, so he. Was, very inspirational character. Died a few years ago, but had, a, had a, I mean, obviously a tremendous effect on California, on the Bay Area, and was a fantastic mountaineer. I mean, who, who taught me really, that, you, you know, you, you have to be good at something no matter what. I mean, you, you can be the great political conservationist, but still you need to, you know, you need to be a mountaineer. And, and so.
1: While well, I wait for additional questions, I have a question of my own. So... Um, Speaking of long now views, we have the benefit of of your great research, which is based on the fact that all these guys kept meticulous notes on paper and they were saved. Um, These days, many corporations aren't even allowed to keep their email where most of the communication is being done. So do you have any suggestions about ways in which we can take a long term view of the future, future historians looking back? Keeping accounts of what we're doing now.
2: Okay, I mean, on the one hand, you know, write stuff down and don't throw it out. Um, and then on the other hand, it looks very, very dangerous. We're, we're having this period where, where it's too easy to throw stuff out and, and we're not writing it down. And what's going to happen? So you can take a very dark view that there's going to be this lost period of history when, you know, the the disks have evaporated and, and there's no records. On the other hand, we are saving a lot of stuff. It's becoming cheaper. It's cheaper now to store stuff and to make a decision to throw it out. So we're actually saving. There aren't these filing cabinets that have to be thrown out because people don't have room. There's these disks that just get forgotten. And hopefully there will be, I think, amateur scholars and stuff who will, you know, save hard drives out of the landfills and, and take them apart and, and find, you know, Monica Lewinsky's diary or something that, that, <laughs> that is 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 valuable and, and, and the, the stuff will be saved that people thought was thrown out. But, in, I mean, in archaeology, it's always, often the wrapping paper, the, you know, the broken pottery that was used to pack something else is in the end the most valuable. I think there's a lot of that going on. But it's a shame to lose the paper, the smell of paper, is a wonderful thing and books are are great and and luckily we have librarians and we have people who who are passionate about keeping that stuff
0: sure enough the uh, digital teaches us to value analog thank you george dyson thank you all for coming tonight hope to see you next month